Anthony here. Hello to all our listeners out there. Hope you're doing well. Just wanted to give a little update, uh, you know, with the state of affairs right now. Rock Station is going to keep going at our regular schedule for the foreseeable future. We had originally planned to end the season sometime in June, just to give ourselves time to recoup and backlog some stories for October. Whether we're going to stick to that plan or keep going a little bit further into the summer is a bit up in the air, but we'll keep you abreast of that situation as it develops and as the broader situation develops as well. Probably the most noticeable change you'll be seeing on the face of things is that it's going to be mostly me reading stories for the next good while. You know, can't really have people over to record. Which means we might be postponing some episodes we were meaning to do soon, and means other episodes that we had different actors in mind for might end up getting read by me, which is unfortunate, but we're going to keep doing our best. Also, just want to briefly mention our Patreon. First of all, to thank people who are still supporting us in these difficult times. It's uh, very much appreciated. And also, just to stress as well, that if you yourself have lost your job or having a little bit of trouble with money right now, just that giving us $5 a month, maybe it's more, maybe it's less, it not necessarily should be the highest priority right now. Obviously, you can do whatever you like with your money, but uh, please just don't put yourselves out on our account is all I'd like to stress. Okay, beyond all that, we're gonna try and keep things normal as ever, which is to say, weird as ever. Okay, thank y'all, and enjoy this episode. They were separated when the final snow began. She was sitting at a crystal bench down on the glass plaza and drinking light from a smoking pool in the palm of her hand. Beyond the glass railing, purple clouds massed on the white face of the endless plain and began their final march on Christopolis. Dark thunderheads rolled over the pale silver sun and the moment that its light blinked out, a quiet certainty thickened in her heart that it was the last time she'd ever see it. She flicked away her handful of light, and it hissed in the cold air as it sublimated into nothing. Just then, the snow began to fall, like little curls of the world's substrate chiseled away from the endless transparency below. The last snow. Egapandrine reached out and caught one of the flakes. It didn't dissolve on the black synthetic surface of her hand, but sat there, gathering matter to its form like a cluster of cells in the womb. She let it fall. Philean, she murmured, and her lover's name formed a cloud of vapor in the air. She looked up at the city, and above her the glass arcades, pillars, and flying buttresses of Christopolis towered against the darkening sky, suffused with neon lights and shades of amethyst, turquoise, and tourmaline. In all the vastness of that city, where could he be right now? She felt dizzy. She felt afraid. Around her, thin snow had already blanketed the glowing flagstones of the glass plaza, stifling their light forever. She had no time to hesitate. If she was going to find him, she had to move now. She started to run. 
They would get out of the city together. They would find some place to begin again. Nobody ever set foot in the glass plaza after that, and Agapandrine would never return to the place where Philaeon had said he loved her. She left radiant footprints as she ran, but when she was gone, the snow filled them up, darkening them forever. She vaulted up the glass stairs to the first level of the city, slipping in thin snow and nearly cutting herself on the crystal edges of the steps. Along the street called Sefirvegur, people had already emerged from their homes and shops, their bistros and tea rooms to watch the falling snow. Is it true? Someone murmured. Is this it? Said someone else. She could hear the anxious note in their voices, even through the muffling snow. They all suspected what the truth really was, but couldn't bring themselves to abandon the comfortable safety of denial. They'd lived for so long knowing that the end could come at any moment, but now that it was here, they couldn't quite believe it. Panic would come eventually, hysterical anger and gibbering fear, but that was for later on. For now, they just held aloft their hands and studied the tumbling clumps of snow in self-deluded wonder. But not Agapandrine. For her, the stakes were too high. She couldn't afford to fool herself, and she ran onward, pounding down the muted streets, drawing dazed expressions as she ran. She plunged down the Rue des Tisserandes, and then up the sloping Schmadeg Webestrasse, legs burning as she emerged on the second level of the city. There, the blown glass devils of the Piazza Multidiavoli were already being turned into angels by the whiteness of newly fallen snow. It was here, where she and Philaen had walked together on the night they first met, that huge viewscreens crackled into life around the square, and her fears were confirmed. A mist of pixels flowed out from the screens, hissing through the snow as they coalesced above the center of the plaza. They began assembling themselves into a face, a man's face a hundred times her height, bulky and pouchy-eyed, and topped by a bile-colored military beret. She stopped to listen to what it had to say. The snowflakes fell as black silhouettes against it, fizzing into steam as they touched its vague surface. Citizens, said the face, this is your leader, General Kole speaking. It was a voice filled with the gravel of sleepless nights, and with the same weary despair that filled the face's dark and greenish eyes. But nevertheless, it boomed across the square like thunder, vibrating the fallen snows into sinusoidal heaps and valleys. She could hear the same announcement echoing from other squares, from other streets, from the open windows of restaurants and houses across Christopolis. I have done what you forced me to do, Cole said. I have initiated the final snow. Even dampened by the snow, she could hear the outraged cry of despair that lifted from a million throats across the city. He had passed a sentence of death upon them, and in so doing upon all of humankind. There were no worlds left, and no ships left to go to them. Some of you will try to resist, but it does not matter now. The deed is done. It cannot be undone. Christopolis is the last place in the world. Now snow will fall until it is buried. A thousand feet, ten thousand feet of snow, all cold, all clean, to bury us down together. Screaming erupted from every corner of the city. A part of Agapandrine wanted to scream with them, but she did not because Philaen was still out there, and as long as he was, she still had hope. "'I take no pleasure in this,' said Cole. His voice now sounded petulant. "'If you loved me, things could have been different. 
If you could have obeyed me and been good, then I wouldn't have had to do this. But now... What? Somewhere out of sight of the cameras, a door had burst open, and now shouts filled the air as the general argued with parties unseen, their every word magnified a hundredfold by the piazza speakers. But Agapandrine had stopped paying attention. She put her hands in her pockets and made her way across the square, passing through Cole's head as the fighting escalated. Sick, crazy old man! Somebody shrieked over the speakers. How dare you! I am Cole! I am your general! His words were cut off by the sound of a discharging plasma arbalist, so amplified by the sound system that it nearly shattered every window in a city made of glass. Though Aga now had her back to the projection, those still looking on saw a bright flash, and then watched as Cole's head erupted into a cloud of greenish, crimson steam. The view screens cut out. The square went dark. The mist of pixels retreated, hissing from the snow. Silence fell, save for muffled moans of lamentation that rose and fell in every street. Agapandrine! She half-turned. It was her friend, Sintrofa, running across the square toward her through the half-deep snow. The white plastic of her skin made her nearly invisible in the pearly light, as did the coat she wore, a swirling, heavy fur made from the bony fleece of a long, dead leucoplexus. Sintrofa! They embraced. I'm looking for my brother, Sintrofa said. Have you seen him? I'm sorry, no. Have you seen... Philean? I passed him on the third level. He was heading up to the General's Palace with a group of the other engineers. They knew the moment it started snowing, he said. They're going to try and destroy the White Engine. Then that's where I have to go, said Agapandrine. Wait. Sintrofa's eyes were dark with fear. Be careful, Agapandrine. He's looking for you. He? Cardiorexis. She felt the blood and coolant drain from her skin. Why, I haven't spoken to him in months. Centrofa looked up at the sky falling around them. The world is ending, she said. Last chance for unfinished business. Agapandrine took her friend's hand. Thank you, she said. I wish we had more time. Go find him, Centrofa said. It's been my joy to share this world with you. They embraced, for the final time and went their separate ways into the cold. Now Agapandrine ran up for the third level, up flights of stairs where each step was twenty yards high, and only eddies in the local gravity made them possible to climb. The snow was falling fast and deep, and when she stepped out over the dizzying drop of a glass lookout, she could no longer see the glass plaza. The place where she had stood less than an hour before was lost to snow the depth of scuttled ships. She kept climbing, through parts of the city that were only floating tangles of metal and ceramic bars, where the residents all had eight or fifteen limbs, or none because they slung themselves along by coils of snake-like abdominal muscle. As she climbed, the air became thick with falling people, those who had let themselves fall because the snow was coming and there was nowhere high enough for them to climb. One of them met her gaze as he fell, and the two of them shared a slow, sad wave before he vanished into the whiteness below but Agapandrine would not stop climbing. She ascended through neighborhoods that were water columns a kilometer high, held up by artificial gravity and frosting up from the outside in as the temperature dropped. As she rose through waters where she and Philean had once swam with clouds of rainbow-colored fish, she passed many fellow citizens, folded up and frozen in the thickening walls. The water became syrupy with cold, and she found herself getting warm and sleepy with hypothermia. But she kicked on, 
and when she arrived at the top of the water column and found it frozen shut, she smashed against the ice with all her strength and cracked through to drag herself gasping and shivering onto the surface with bloody fists because she was still not ready to give up. Now the snow was thick enough to foul her vision any distance further than a dozen feet ahead. The surface of the water cylinder was slick as she stumbled across it, and all the more treacherous because she could not see her footing in the snow. She slipped and fell, took a moment on all fours to catch her breath, even though the snow came up to her elbows and was deadening cold. She was exhausted from the struggle. It would be nice to just lie down and let the snow swaddle her up and let death make her feel warm again. She played with the temptation for a moment, closing her eyes and letting herself drift. She had almost allowed it to happen when she heard, or thought she heard, a voice crying her name in the distance. Agapandrine? Agapandrine? Philaean? She shouted. She struggled to her feet, kicking away the seductive grasp of the snowdrifts until she felt her senses sharpen again. She called his name a second time, but she could feel her words getting swallowed up by the snow. Agapandrine. The voice came from ahead, she thought, and through thigh-deep snow she began to wade her way through a forest of crystals. This was the place of snow burial, where those whose time had come would climb into shards of diamond and fall asleep. Because these diamonds grew from a special kind of seed, they would float when unspooled from the ground, and the dead would be carried away, far over the horizon, where eventually their sliver would fall from the sky, somewhere far from Christopolis, and pierce the endless snows of the endless plain, and come to rest in some frozen darkness far below, and there be preserved forever, though to what end and for whom to find, the city did not know. The yard was empty. Though many in Christopolis were even now succumbing to despair, they did not come to the place of snow burial, for that was what the whole city had become. Philian! she shouted, but did not hear the cry again until she had reached the other side of the crystal forest. Agapandrine. The voice was behind her now, and suddenly clear as she reached the low stone wall which separated the crystal yards from the deliquescent quarter. She turned, and squinted out a darkness, a figure in the impenetrable snow. Philian, is that you? Agapandrin, said the voice. Aga, it's me. He drew closer through the snow, and she felt her heart grow cold. The shape was wrong. It was not Philian. Cardiorexis, she said, as he finally became visible through the storm. He was very tall, and cut a fine figure in his three-piece woolen suit, with his handsome, long-toothed mandrel's face, and a gold diadem nestling in his dark, wavy hair. He was wearing something on one of his hands that she hadn't seen before, a kind of glove made of light. His other hand was bare, and extended toward her, open, in a beseeching gesture. Aga, please, he said. Just let me. She turned and ran. Agapandrine, wait! She vaulted the wall and barreled down into the deliquescent quarter, skidding on black ice hidden underneath the snow. She heard him crashing through the drifts behind her, and hurled herself headlong into the warrens and rookeries of the quarter, pushing off the brightly colored walls to turn down new directions at random. He was a faster runner, faster than her at the best of times, and his long legs gave him an advantage in this deep snow. Her only chance was to lose him in the labyrinthine slums. She burst out of a curtain of reeds that grew out of the air below a doorframe, and found herself spiraling down a glass stairwell into one of the famed speakeasies of the quarter. Welcome, welcome, 
Voices called to her as she passed open rooms where people drank tall flutes of blood, smoking fresh from one another's veins, or else broad chambers of pillows where people partook in sexual ecstasies lesser civilizations never even contemplated. Come spend the end of the world with us, they said. She shoved past a man made of hemp and thread, her feet pounding through laudanum dens where people, creatures and machines of every gender, leaned back in baths of boiling champagne, some with a glass wasp in their forearm, pumping out its life to inject them with fatal ecstasy. Agapandrine, Cardiorexis shouted behind her, as she heard crashes, shouts, and the roaring discharge of that dragoon revolver he had always carried in the fistula underneath his ribs. She vaulted out a back window, and stumbled through streets where snow piled high over the bodies of those who had already superdosed themselves on milk pills and hallucinogenic teeth. Another door, another bar, a dark space where the glass walls were lit by burning cressets of friendship grease and neon signs written in a dead language. Here, a giant woman sat alone upon the mirrored floor, the last survivor of a raging party having volunteered to go last. She had a rolled-up Rembrandt in her nostril, and was snorting lines of color dust. Around her lay the scattered, empty clothes of all her fellow partygoers, and those she had called her children. The woman had enough time to look up at Agapandrine, smile, and say, Good luck, before she dissolved into a multicolored cloud and began to drift toward the open window. Agapandrine held her breath and rushed through the woman's musty-scented mist. More clouds of color wafted in the alley as she smashed through the window and rolled through the snow and broken glass. Many had begun to stain the drifts in colored pareidolias, patterns that looked like glad or tortured faces. She ignored them. She heard Cardiorexis shouting for her somewhere in the quarter and ran to dive on her belly along a long, clear stretch of ice, sliding up the steep slope to land, winded and spitting gritty snow at the edge of a vast chasm. She glanced up. On the other side of the abyss stood the city's seventh lair, a glittering otherworld of amethyst and garnet spires. Not far from her, a narrow glass bridge spanned the yawning void, like a strand of spun sugar crossing the mouth of an open tomb. She heard her name called again as she staggered to her feet and lurched towards the bridge. Cardiorexis. He had come around from another direction and was charging toward her through the snow, only a hundred feet away. The bridge was only half as far. She sprinted for it, hiking her knees up to her chest to clear the drifts. But he was gaining. He was too fast. She would never beat him there. Agapandrin, listen! She reached inside her coat, fiddling with the lid of the small canteen of light in her pocket as he lunged and snagged her ankle, tripping her. She landed hard, and scrambled backwards to the edge of the cliff as he stood, covered in snow, his blue face rosy with cold. The world's ending, Aga, he said, extending his hand to her. Why do you run from me? Because we never should have been together. I should have run away from you a long time before I did. From her pocket, she produced the lidless flask and lashed out. Light spilled from it, smoking in the cold night, and sprayed across his face in blinding streaks. He shouted and fell back, clutching his seared orange eyes and she struggled to her feet, nearly slipping to her death as she staggered across the glass bridge. Agapandrine, why? He howled. Even through the snow she could see that his orange eyes had been blinded by the burning light. The snow here was littered with huge shards of glass masonry, and she took one in both bloodied hands, raising it above her head and flinging it down to shatter the bridge between them. 
A wind blew down the chasm. It caused the fragments to chime together as they fell, picking up speed toward the buried city below. It's the end of the world, he shouted. All I wanted was to spend it with you. I still love you, Aga. After all this time. I'm sorry, Rexus, she said. Now that she was out of immediate danger, she felt tired again, sober and subdued. The snow was getting deeper. Already the first several levels of the city were buried for good. How long since she'd left the Piazza Multi Diavoli? Only a lifetime ago? Now it was buried under hundreds of feet of snow, compressing everything and everyone beneath it until they, like the devil statues, were crushed into glass. Don't leave me for him, Agapandrine, Cardiorexus shouted. He's just mist and vapor. He's a handful of dust. Goodbye, Cardiorexus. She turned away. Above her, like a great glass zeppelin, Cole's palace bloated, glowing with indigo and fuchsia light. You're a fool, Agapandrine. His voice died away into the wind and storm behind her. For the last ten thousand years, General Cole had kept his palace ringed with guards and floating tanks and feathered war orcas creaking in their armor. But now, now that the self-appointed great man had given up on his cause, his cordon was broken, scattered by infighting, sectional strife, and that greatest of all enemies, suicide. Snow had covered the scene of the battle, but now and then a great streak of still steaming crimson showed through the silent mounds. The palace's huge quintuple doors were shattered, and Aga followed floating feathers of snow into the empty great hole. Plasma scars and the awful hemispheric absences left by antimatter rounds scarred the walls. At the top of the room lay Kole himself, that ugly, recognizable face obliterated altogether, and only that body of his remaining. That body he had always hated, but refused to change, preferring instead to try and change everybody else. The great idiot. He had gone and done it. He had ruined it all for everybody else, and just because he could not stand himself. She felt an urge to kick the body, but the idea exhausted her. She consented to give it a little tap with her foot. There. Justice at last. And that, only that, was her retribution for his murder of all things. In the room beyond the hall, there was shouting and frantic activity. From floor to ceiling, about two thousand feet, stood the white engine, that huge implement of undivine judgment upon the human race. Far above, a white vortex surrounded the white points of its apex. Closer to home, its four great white feet gripped the glass floor, in the shape of lion's paws. Around these feet rushed the engineers, in their glowing plastic armor and fuchsia capes. They were frantically trying to shut the engine down, but a white field surrounded it, and any time one of them touched this field, their hand would vaporize. She blinked, trying to spot Philion, but he was not there. Agapandrin! It was one of the engineers, his faces covered in grease, soot, and a grave expression as he drew near. Demiurgos, she said. Will you be able to stop it? And where is Philion? He shook his heads. It's not going well, Agapandrin. I don't know if we'll be able to stop it in time. This may be the end. As for Philion, Cardiorexus has him. He took him at gunpoint several hours ago. He said he was going to come and find you. We couldn't stop him. We needed every second we could get to stop the engine. The news rocked her. 
She felt the world go vague for a moment, and then a hand gripped her wrist. There's a way out, Agapandrine, Demiurgo said. Her eyes focused again. Cole had a shuttle, programmed to go somewhere safe, one safe spot in this whole world just for him, but his own people turned on him before he could use it. There's still time for you to take it. Somebody should. But you have to go now. The shuttle bay is just downhill from here. By now it must be almost snowed in. She shook her head and tore her hand away, even as her heart jumped at the possibility of escape. No. Not without Philion. We're getting out of here together. Where did Cardiorexis take him? Demiurgos's faces fell. Up, he said. Up to the top level. But even if you find him, you'll never make it back in time. But she was already gone, and Demiurgos returned to his work. The work he would still be at when the windows smashed and the snow poured in, putting an end to it forever. Agapandrine climbed. Now the snow was falling thicker than ever before, so thick that sometimes she worried it would smother her if she opened her mouth. The snow outside the palace had been chest deep, but she'd fought her way through to the ladder and began to climb. Now, for all the days since, she was no further above the endless white plain than she'd been when she started. Below her, almost all of Christopolis, the only city in the world, was suffocated by the snow. Even if she'd been able to hear it in that muffling weather, she did not think she would hear any more shouts, or screams, or gunshots from below. In the rooftop gardens of the palace, she found a group of refugees, people who had fled here before her, huddled in a hollowed-out divot in the neck-high snow. In a short time, they would be all that remained of life in the world. "'You can't go any further up,' one woman said, touching Aga's shoulder as she tried to press on. "'There's a man with a revolver up there. He's keeping somebody in a cage. He said he'd kill us if we went up.' "'Thank you,' said Agapandrine, and on she went. At the very top of the gardens, at the very top of Christopolis, there stood a circular balcony from which one could look down on everything, on the whole city in all its multifaceted glory. Now it was nothing but a white circle, with a view of a white horizon. Somebody had shoveled it clean a few minutes earlier, but the snow was already ankle-deep again. A cage of caloric light stood opposite the stairwell she had climbed, and Philaen, her only love, stood lonely inside it, staring forlorn at the endless white. It broke her heart to see him caged like this, who she had seen floating through the city so often, as free as a golden feather on the wind. He was, as Cardiorexis had described him, glowing, insubstantial. But when she called to him, he turned and called her name, and the sound in his voice was the same as the sound in her heart. She ran to him, and took him in her arms, for the bars of the cage were built to contain someone of his substance, but not of hers. For a long moment, on top of the dying world, they kissed. Oh, said a voice behind them. They turned. It was Cardiorexis, shrugging out from the harness of a whisper-silent jetpack. It was clear from the red streaks on his blue nose that he had torn out his own blind eyes and replaced them with those of whoever he had stolen the jetpack from. The eyes which blinked at them now were green and pretty and sad. He was not carrying the revolver anymore, but a kind of rifle made of light that he held with that luminously gloved hand. This weapon was leveled at Philaen, 
So, said Cardiorexis. His voice was choked, and the hand which pointed that strange weapon was trembling. Mingled blood and water trailed from his new eyes. So that's really how it is, then. They looked at him in silence. I thought... He laughed, a bitter sound in the back of his throat. I don't know what I thought. Maybe I didn't think. Maybe I just treasured the notion, the stupid notion that if he were out of the picture you would have no choice. He trailed off. Because why would somebody spend the end of time alone if they didn't have to? He demanded, showing his long fangs. He was shouting, but the last snow stifled his voice. The end of the world was to be quiet, no matter how he raged against it. And again, they did not answer. It wouldn't matter, would it? He said, lowering the weapon, flicking some switch so that it, the cage and glove all disappeared. Even if he were gone, you'd still be spending the end of the world with him, wouldn't you? That's right, she said. And although she hated him, and although he had been a monster both to her and countless others, she found it hard to hate him now. It was the end of the world. Why waste what time was left? And so she let the feeling go. He turned to leave. To leave for where? Anywhere. The snow had now reached the highest level, and on every side the endless plain could take him as far as he could walk before being buried. Cardiorexis, she said. He stopped and glanced half over his shoulder. If Philian and I can be together while apart. She trailed off, but he picked up the thought. Then maybe I don't need someone else to be complete. He thought about it for a long moment, putting his hands in his pockets. I think that might be true, he said. I think I'll go find out. And he walked on into the white desert. And now the two were left alone, and as the snow washed up to meet the balustrade where they stood, they stepped out in a direction of their own, and though the snow was soft beneath their feet, the frozen and uplifted palms of the last survivors supported their footsteps in the snow. We're too late, she said. There was a shuttle. We could have gone somewhere safe if things had worked out differently. She sighed. Her breath froze. It was now very cold indeed. I suppose there's no hope left, she said. No, he agreed. It seems a shame that things should end this way, but maybe it was always going to. Maybe some fool was always going to doom us all. But I don't feel lost, he said. Neither do I. She reached out and they held hands together as they watched the silent snows fall. The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is that you listen to The Wrong Station. This week's episode, Come Down to Us, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel. 
with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmid. You can subscribe to The Ron Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Botello, and Jacob BRDS. And until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>